welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. The new film, Little Pink House, is about a landmark Supreme Court case that affirmed the use of eminent domain to take the homes of people in a Connecticut town for the sake of private redevelopment. The story is told through the real-life plaintiff in the case, Suzette Kilo, who fought to save her little pink house. No amount of money could replace our homes. This is where we chose to settle, and this is where we want to stay. Joining me in our New York studios are Suzette Kilo and the writer and director of the film, Courtney Balliker. Thank you both for being here. It's wonderful to have you. Thanks for having us. Thank Suzette, you very much. Your story resonates even more today when many women who have never been advocates are becoming just that. What inspired you? Well, I simply um, was just trying to do the right thing, trying to save our homes in our uh, neighborhood. So. You're, as, you're as short-spoken as, you, as, as your character in the movie. <laughs> so, but to the point. So, Courtney, it's very rarely that we see films when the struggles of real people for years and years to get their cases to the Supreme Court are told. Why did you want to make this film? I was not as familiar with this case as my husband and producing partner Ted was. Uh, we, we were brought, it was brought to our attention that the book, uh, written by Jeff Benedict of the same title, that the film and, TV, film and TV rights were available. I read the book and I was astounded that this happened in our country and that the United States Supreme Court allowed it and said it was legal. So I had to tell this story and... It was important for me to put a human face on this sort of vague issue that a lot of people don't know about called eminent domain abuse. Eminent domain is, you know, is usually used to widen a road or build a hospital, something for public use. It's not supposed to be so that people can take property from private individuals and give it over to a private corporation or or for the benefit of a private corporation in this particular case. So I I felt that Suzette's story was so inspiring, what she did, and she did not want to be the face of this cause. She did not want to to, you know, stand up in front of, you know, hundreds of cameras talking to millions and millions of Americans about her story. But she did it because, as she said, it was the right principal thing to do. And because she did that, because she fought, even though she lost, millions of Americans got to keep their homes because laws were changed. People were outraged by this decision. Suzette, when you first saw the movie, what was your reaction, seeing yourself portrayed there? Well, um... I was really pleased with the film, and I have to say that um, having it it portrayed and bringing it to light uh, again after so many years from the Supreme Court, it makes um, me really relieved to see that the American people aren't going to forget what happened to us in that neighborhood. Well, are you getting reactions from people about the case now? Yeah, there's like there is a again another interest in what happened. You know, people can't believe this happened. It, yes, it's all come to light again. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie is beautifully shot, Courtney, and certain scenes really stand out, like the that jolting scene with the bulldozers. Um, what do you want audiences to get from seeing them film? What I want audiences to walk away with is at least having a conversation about whether or not this type of 
eminent domain abuse is is right. I would hope that they would say, no, it's not. It was a very controversial issue at the time when Suzette and her neighbors were going through it. Um, I also want people to understand that being resilient is crucial. You have to stand up to the powers that be. This was a case, this was not about Democrats versus Republicans. This was about insiders versus outsiders. The government cozying up to a multi-billion dollar corporation. Everybody's saying that they're standing up for the little guy. And they didn't. The little guy lost. And that's really what happens in almost all of these cases. The little guy loses. These eminent domain abuse cases happen typically in poor and minority communities where they don't have a lot of support and resources. So I really hope that people walk away being inspired by Suzette's stance and her strength. And also, I hope that maybe we can make a difference and and stop this from happening again. It is a a classic David versus Goliath story. And Suzette, as David, you went on after the Supreme Court argument, after you lost that case. And tell us what you did. Well, I continue to um, go and give speeches and talk to people about uh, how to help them fight uh, eminent domain. And you actually, there were laws passed in several states. Yes, there's was um, mentioning. Uh, 44 states now have enacted laws to, to change uh, their eminent domain laws in their states, as well as municipalities and towns within states have even changed uh, their own laws. So, uh, Courtney, even for those who know the story, you see at the end what happened to the little pink house, and it is a surprise. Tell us what happened to the little pink house. Well, it has been more than 10 years since the Supreme Court decision, and nothing has been built where Suzette and her neighbors' houses once stood. It's weeds and feral cats, and it's shocking and tragic, but that's that's the case in many of these situations. There are all these big ideas, but very little happens. Um, It was important for me as the director to show that because people have just been immersed in this story going on the journey with Suzette. But I think it's very important for people to see the real land and where it stands. And ironically and disgustingly, (laughs) my opinion, there is a sign there right now in front of this vacant plot of land saying uh, Fort Trumbull uh, open for new development opportunities. So, you know, again... this is this was an ordeal, and I, this is important to mention as well. This was 10 years of Suzette's life. This was not just a few bad weeks going up against the city. This took a toll on her and her neighbors emotionally, physically, financially. Uh, it was a battle, and she fought it, and she fought it bravely. And when she and her neighbors lost, eighty, I think 85%, something like that, of Americans were just outraged and 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 again and that is another thing that led to change so this is not all for naught this is a movement the the story continues we want to use this movie to bring awareness and education um and and that's what i hope we do starting tonight because we open in theaters tonight Justice John Paul Stevens, who actually wrote the opinion, said it was one of the most unpopular he ever wrote. In just about 30 seconds, Suzette, um, your life today, has this is this in the background now, or is it always part? No, it's always part. Yeah, expl- yeah always part. Yeah. 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 So, um, finally, Courtney, about 30 seconds, the timing of the movie seems almost... Almost as if it was it surreal. Was made that way. Yes, surreal is the word because of President Trump and his support for eminent domain and, and, his, and his support of the, the decision against her. 
So, so audiences have, have yet to look at that, and um, it's, it's a great story. It's David and Goliath. It's about a landmark Supreme Court case, the real story behind it, which we don't often get to see. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for having us. And again, we open in theaters tonight in New York, L.A., Atlanta, San Francisco. LittlePinkHouseMovie.com has all of the information. So we're a little movie. Please help support it. <laughs> all right. Thank you both. That's Courtney Balaker. She is the director and writer, and Suzette Kello, who is the subject of the story. Yesterday, a federal appeals court in Chicago ruled against the Trump administration's efforts to withhold federal funds from so-called sanctuary cities, something the president has frequently criticized. They go into those sanctuary cities. When they see them, they go there because they feel they're safe. And in many cases, they are very bad actors. We have gang members. We have predators, rapists, killers, a lot of bad people. Joining me is David Beer, an immigration policy analyst at the Cato Institute. David, this is the first time that a federal appeals court has weighed in on the Trump administration's block on sanctuary city funding. How significant is this decision? It's pretty significant in terms of uh, blocking the president's agenda on this. Uh, A very key portion of his uh, regulatory agenda on sanctuary cities was limiting the funds that could go through federal grants to cities that uh, he deems uh, to not comply with immigration agents to the fullest extent that he wants. And so this decision will certainly hamper their ability to uh, bring down the hammer on on those cities that uh, uh, are going out of their way to uh, uh, obstruct the president. Although the Justice Department has said that the agency doesn't agree that it assumed a funding power belonging to Congress, all three of the judges are Republican appointees, and the court used very strong language, saying allowing this could lead to tyranny, and that the AG Jeff Sessions used the sort of federal funding to conscript states. Tell us more about the opinion itself. You're absolutely right. I mean, this decision... Uh, describes uh, the behavior of the Trump administration as tyrannical, as uh, you know, flying in the face of American tradition and the and the position of the founding fathers on uh, on the relationship between the executive branch and the legislative branch, and the relationship between the federal government and the states. And what they said was what the administration has done here is essentially created new requirements for uh, for these grants, these law enforcement grants, uh, you know, specifically to the city of Chicago, but also throughout the country, uh, without uh, congressional approval. So they've essentially decided we are going to set the requirements for how uh, the United States spends money, and that's a, a power specifically given to Congress in the Constitution. And uh, the second thing that uh, the decision says is that uh, the Attorney General and, and the uh, Trump administration have uh, really undermined our system of federalism by trying to coerce uh, or conscript, uh, to use the term that you quoted, these local and state authorities 
to do what the federal government wants, which is uh, really uh, contrary to the principles uh, that the founders established that separate the state and federal uh, uh, jurisdictions. And so the idea that the federal government can force or coerce uh, states and localities into uh, doing its bidding uh, would essentially make them agencies of the federal government, which is something that uh, the founders explicitly opposed. And uh, that's one of the reasons why uh, this, uh, this panel found uh, the uh, action unconst- unconstitutional. So, David, were the judges sending out a specific message by saying it falls to us, the judiciary, as the remaining branch of the government to act as a check on such usurpation of power? So as pointing out that they are a check on the executive branch, is there a message there to the Trump administration? Absolutely. It's, it's, I mean, they're telling the Trump administration that they cannot act in this way. And so... Uh, as long as the administration keeps inventing new ways to, uh, you know, get at the same issue, um, you know, the courts are going to continue to strike them down. Does this have implications for other legal cases or other moves made by the Trump administration? Well, it's it's an interesting question. So there are cases uh, pending in California for uh, the state of California's uh, essentially the opposite actions where they have att- attempted to target uh, federal law enforcement activities in uh, the state of California. And really, that some of those provisions go in the opposite direction, essentially undermining the federal government's authority. Um, in California in some ways. And so uh, it's likely that the principles being laid down here uh, will cut against uh, some of the actions that states and localities have done in, uh, in some parts of the country to, to reverse the actions that the administration is taking. Um, so this separation uh, between the states and feds cuts both ways, and uh, it's likely that you know, some provisions of those California laws will be uh, struck down as well on the, on the same basis. The court said the term sanctuary cities is an unfair attack on local authorities and, and went at length about that. But it, that seemed a little odd to me because a lot of local authorities and cities and, and governors are embracing the idea of being a sanctuary city or state. No, it, it's absolutely true. Uh, some people have, have certainly embraced um you know, that principle. And so there's really no reason to take issue with the terminology uh, being used. It's really about the policies and the legality uh, that matter here. There was a a dissent by one judge saying the ruling should have been limited to Chicago. In about a minute, just explain that. Well, so Chicago is the uh, jurisdiction that is challenging this uh, th- these new conditions for the federal grants. And so the argument there would be that uh, really the city of Chicago should be the one that receives relief, not uh, essentially the entire, uh, the entire United States, every jurisdiction, um, even ones that do not oppose 
uh, the restrictions um, on the grants. All right. Thanks so much, David. As always, that's David Beer. He's an immigration policy analyst at the Cato Institute. There is also a case pending in California, and we have to see whether the appeals court there will rule in line with the appeals court in the Seventh Circuit. That's the Seventh and Ninth Circuits. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.